Black Lives Matter. Black Health Matter. Healthcare Untold. Hello, I'm Barbara Ann Garcia, healthcare advocate, strong woman athlete, and the host of Healthcare Untold. Healthcare Untold is a podcast dedicated to giving voice to everyday heroes and their untold health stories that can improve healthcare to our most vulnerable communities. It is May 7th, 2020. With me today is Jonathan Vernick. Jonathan is an expert in both mental health and substance use. Trained as a psychotherapist, Jonathan provided psychosocial rehabilitation services in a number of nonprofit organizations. For over 30 years, Jonathan worked at Baker Places, a residential program in San Francisco, where he became the executive director. Under his leadership, Baker Places created a continuum of targeted residential treatment programs, integrating both mental health and substance use treatment. He led this organization during the HIV-AIDS epidemic, where the first program was developed for people with HIV-AIDS and co-occurring mental health and substance use. Jonathan also founded California's first outpatient medical detox, which I believe revolutionized the substance use system to acknowledge the medical needs of substance users, particularly in detox services. So, Jonathan, welcome help to Healthcare and Toad. How are you doing today, Jonathan? Thanks, Barbara. I'm really, I'm really happy to be here. I'm doing as well as anyone can doing under the current sheltering in place uh, environment. I kind of feel like I'm revisiting a science fiction movie from 1951, The Day the Earth Stood Still. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, it's been kind of interesting because you find actually you reach out to more people than you may have talked to in some time because you have some time on your hands and you want to connect with people. So that's been it for me. Yeah, same here, Jonathan. And, you know, since I've had this podcast, um, you know, I started it before the virus really became evident. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, and so it's given me uh, an opportunity to, I have to incorporate COVID-19 conversations into it because it's logical since we're dealing with health and also with health leaders like yourself. Um, but, you know, it's also given me the opportunity to reach out to people like yourself um, who, you know, we worked together for many years at the San Francisco Health yeah. Department, right? So That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. So, Jonathan, um, you witnessed firsthand the important improvements in the fields of mental health and substance use, uh, particularly the introduction to new medications, and including the mental health services. Um, and I believe, you know, the, schi- the medications for schizophrenics weren't very good, Um and for bipolar, um, but um, and and then in in substance use, it really has made big differences for people. So, can you share with our audience how we were providing care before the new models of care were introduced, particularly medications? Yes. Uh, well, the, really, the way back in 1957, they discovered accidentally that thorazine, which was being used as a antihistamine which I, I can't imagine taking Thorazine and then driving, but nevertheless, they discovered that Thorazine actually worked really well with psychotic disorders. Is people who 
um, had hallucinations and delusions and weren't able to care for themselves um, and understand the outside environment. So many of those people were locked up in institutional care. And once Thorazine began being used and we started to get some sense of what was going on in some of those institutions, it started a kind of revolution. So people were able um, to get client rights, to get personal rights, to try to be able to live outside in the community wherever possible. So the advent of, of Thorazine back then was a was a good thing. It allowed people to begin to leave institutional care, although Thorazine was sometimes misused. Thorazine also has a, lo- a lot of side effects. Target dyskinesia, which is um, uh, the inability to control certain motor functions, um, actually made people look and act uh, and uh, what appeared to be um, uh, mental illness was really a set of symptoms that was the result of the overuse of the thoracy. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, in the 80s and 90s, the medications um, became uh, had less side effects, less symptoms. People were able to function more freely, and it coincided with really the civil rights movement and the client rights movement and the American for Disabilities Act and and so on, along with following really the, the 70s revolution in terms of taking a look at personal rights and freedoms and dignities that people deserve while questioning, while questioning authority. The result was there was a movement that occurred really in the in the 60s, uh, where many institutions were able to move clients to the community. And uh, that that had its, it, its uh, pitfalls, but um, clients were able to operate more independently. And the challenge was, where, where are we going to put these, these individuals and what are they going to do? And during that time came the, really the invention of, these uh, social rehabilitation settings, which were basically residential housing, which was purchased by a by a provider, and in Baker Plantis' case, um, with seed money from Glide um, Memorial, uh, we were able to invest in in simply buying a Victorian, fixing it up, and the staff, which were regular folk. Um, were hired to work with people who had a whole array of disorders and and lived together. So we developed a model of care that was an alternative to psychiatric care in an institutional setting. And that was very helpful because yeah. we were able... I'm sorry, go yeah, ahead. I wanted to ask, Jonathan, yeah. you know, um, people um, today even send... We'll take the COVID-19 situation out of the question right now because there are probably nobody coming in and out of residential programs right now. But residential programs um, were really uh, a real important part of the uh, and of the mental health system um, mm-hmm. and then became also in the substance abuse system. But right. what happens on a daily basis? Because I know, you know, people send people to rehabs, as they call them, um, 
Mm-hmm. What happens on a daily basis? What Give us a day of, of somebody coming into one of the, those programs. Well, I think that the, the first thing that's important, if you can imagine leaving a hospital life environment or some other environment and walking into uh, a, a brand new environment where you don't know anyone and everyone's a stranger and on top of everything else, you're dealing with a whole host of problems, whether they're mental health problems or physical problems related to substance use. So um, in those settings, the first thing that'll happen, let's imagine someone's already been uh, greeted by the group and moved in to last night, the next day, uh, people will get up uh, and make breakfast together, um, share a meal together. Uh, we focus on independent living skills and the ability to socialize with one another. The most common problem um, it, it, for most of these people is, uh, is social isolation. And so uh, the, the ability to function in a group setting is really critical. And the programs generally, if you walked into one or someone walked into one today, what you would see at first glance would be a bunch of people who were living together, all of whom had a, a significant uh, array of uh, backgrounds, ethnically, racially, and so forth, and uh, a wide range in terms of age from usually the early 20s to the six, to your 60s. Um, but we try to live in a kind of collective environment where people are doing chores in the house, participating in the running of the actual physical plants of the program, sitting together um, after breakfast in, in a group to do a kind of group check-in. Normally at that time, someone's introduced to the community if they just arrived there. Um, they're assigned a, a counselor to work with closely, one individual counselor. Um, and after the community meeting, typically there's uh, an opportunity to do some physical exercise uh, that can involve simply going for walks in the community um, or doing any other kind of aerobic exercise. And then there are a series of groups uh, that deal with everything to what are the behaviors that got you into trouble, whether that's a substance use issue or a mental health issue. Uh, how can you better achieve success in your life, which means trying to meet the goals that one, every one of us has uh, goals for our own uh, achievement of success, however we define it. And uh, it doesn't matter if that's a, a client who's mentally ill or has a substance abuse problem. And so we try to, to key in our treatment planning, which we do one-on-one with clients, um, and, and related to how they're going to achieve whatever goal it is. So in a medical model, you're given, you, you present with a symptom, you're given a diagnosis, often you're given some medicine and you go on your way. In this setting, you sit down and talk about what your goals are and the counselor focuses not on your so-called disability, but instead on your ability to achieve the results that you're looking for. It's an environment that's structured, not overly structured, but everyone wakes up in the morning and knows what they're going to be participating in and doing that day. 
that provides an enormous sense of safety, of community, of living with others, um, with the same staff really um, working with them throughout the week. There's about, in a smaller residential setting, there's usually about 12 staff for 12 clients or so. And those numbers coincide and, and get larger as the facility gets larger. Um, so you would, you would walk in and probably see people living together uh, in a way that you wouldn't know, as I said at first blush, that it's any different than anything else. Mm. And, Those you know, environments. Yeah, and I guess and you're really preparing people to go back into the general communities and be able to live um, in roommate situations or even by themselves right. and continue to get care. Um, you know, I did skip over a little bit as you were talking about the history of medications and, you know, mm-hmm. um, Anytime when I'm with mental health advocates, they always talk about the emptying of the mental health hospitals. And Mm -hmm. um, I assume that this was part of what we were trying to get done in terms of having outpatient settings and residential settings as a way, as an alternative. But I always heard from the mental health um, advocates that the money never followed uh, those programs in terms of the shedding of hospitals. Uh, we never really fully invested um, in some communities like San Francisco. They really did. But in other communities around the country, uh, that was not the case. And, and is that uh, how you would see the history of that as well? I, yeah, I would agree. I think that, unfortunately, the, the, that movement called deinstitutionalization, which actually occurred in California under Ronald Reagan, um, the kind of marrying of fiscal conservatives and social liberals because what a great solution. This will cost less money than having people locked up in a hospital and they'll be in a community. But as you said, the money didn't adequately follow the clients who were being released to the community. So there were a series of programs and uh, uh, so-called halfway houses in those days that were set up, but but it lacks significantly in terms of its funding. Deinstitutionalization, unfortunately, is also often blamed for the, the development of the um, homeless issues and homeless problems, people call it. In fact, I don't think that it was deinstitutionalization in and of itself that created the problem, nor that was it a bad idea. It was a funding issue which created... Uh, some difficulty in being able to locate people uh, into into programs. Um, and as a result, some people um, weren't able to receive services. And um, that coupled with huge inequities in the cost of living in San Francisco helped to enable a homeless problem um, to develop and develop and develop. Yeah. Well, Jonathan, why don't you share with our audience how you started um, in healthcare? Um, you were a psychotherapist. You got trained in um, some really important uh, universities around uh, the area. But uh, what got you into uh, psychotherapy? Well, uh, I guess, you, you know, life occurs uh, really according to certain lucky happenstances. I, I believe synchronicity was what Carl Jung called it. So I had graduated from undergraduate school. I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do. I wanted to know what I wanted to do, but I didn't know. So I moved out to California. and Everybody uh, finds their and, way. 
That's right. Well, as or as Mark Twain said, that the United States was built on an angle and everything loose rolled to California. <laughs> but uh, in any event, that's great. And, and really, this was just a series of happy circumstances. I found a place to live um, in this in this little apartment in Noe Valley. But there was a woman who was living upstairs that worked for a community agency called Youth for Service, which was located for many years in the Mission District. And she said, well, they have a job board there. Maybe you could get a job. You could look at their, their job board and get some ideas. So I went down there to look for a job through the agency. And as a result of several conversations, uh, the program director there offered me a job there. Just almost on the spot, I think he saw that I was really interested in in doing something that um, that would contribute to the community or whatever. So I was hired um, at this place, and I discovered community-based agencies at that moment. And from that point on, I knew that I wanted to work in the community. I liked the diversity of the staff. I liked the music. I liked working alongside people, not having a, a hierarchy and so forth in, in, in the setting. And as I continued to pursue this community-based stuff, I became more and more interested in, in working with people with disabilities. So I went back to school at San Francisco State, got a degree in a master's degree in rehabilitation counseling. While I was there, I had a, a mentor, um, a supervisor of mine, who had worked for years in mental health, and I loved working with folk. And there were a lot of them at San Francisco State struggling to try to get through school. They dealt sometimes with very serious problems, including sometimes hearing voices, having hallucinations, delusions, and yet they were able to cope. And I was fascinated by that. Mm-hmm. So I began working at the at a place called Connor House, which is still around today, um, and started working with people vocationally. But what I was really interested in was was working with people with mental illness because I found them great communicators of real life circumstances, um, and they spoke in a way that uh, was very impactful for me, very evocative. And I grew attached to them and wanted to get more and more of it. Of course, as you alluded to, as I went on in this, I also discovered that many, not all by any stretch, but many people also had substance use problems. Mm -hmm. In those days, there were really, there were um, substance abuse programs and there were mental health programs. And they were very distinct from one another. So to go back to your original question, one of those specific developments that occurred is we got better and better at understanding that people had an array of problems that we didn't um, recognize initially, that the underlying problem with someone who was, we believe to be mentally ill, was at times really substance use, uh, which can cause all kinds of erratic behavior. And we used to call it self-medicating in the old days, that they were just dealing with tremendous anxiety, so they were drinking or doing drugs. And we were wrong. They actually had substance use problems in addition to sometimes very severe mental illness. And the way that the system developed over the next 30 years or so was there were more integrated programs 
bringing together substance use and mental health. Um, and today, there's there are often little distinction between we don't call programs integrated anymore because they are integrated. They provide services for co-occurring disorders at the same time. And, and Jonathan, there was a real distinction because, you know, when I met you, I was the homeless director of the health department and mm-hmm. then became the substance use uh, director. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a real difference between um, the mental health system and the substance use system, particularly because of the way that um, it was being funded. So as an example... You could get Medi-Cal. Right. And on the other side, you really couldn't get Medi-Cal for substance use. And so that system became very more, um, you know, the AA, the detox, as you know, before you created the medical detox, it was like a cot and a a bucket. That's how people detoxed. Right. Right. uh, Versus really uh, managing their detoxes because it's very dangerous and particularly those uh, with... uh, who are alcoholics. Um, and right. so, you know, changing that perspective just recently in the last, what, two or three years where we were able to give Medi-Cal to everyone. I mean, people really had to get into a SSI mode in order to have Medi-Cal um, overall who were, had substance use. And then, um, and even that was taken away from them for many years because, uh, you know, there was some, um, the thought that they were using their money for drugs instead of supporting right. themselves. And, and if they were addicted, I'm sure they were because they had to um, in terms of mm-hmm. just living. So we've, mm-hmm. you know, I think we've just come in such a tremendous way um, for trying to get some parity between both of those diseases that are both, um, you know, brain diseases and um, really trying to bring that together with the, holistic approach of, and we've talked a lot about this on this podcast, bringing it together as one body uh, versus, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, funding for one part of your brain and funding for another part of the brain. And it's just doesn't make sense. You know, can you give us more about that? Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more. I think that, that part of the, part of the issue was that the providers on the street at first didn't understand the distinction. So substance abuse, um, programs, the kind of old world AA programs would really uh, try to, to keep themselves apart from taking in people who were mentally ill. They, they felt they didn't know enough about them. They didn't understand medication. They had a philosophy that said you shouldn't take any medication under any circumstances. And the mental health professionals felt that people who had substance use problems, that that really wasn't primary. And so I think as, as community agencies began to better understand this and began to have people under their roof that had these multiple problems, the system began to educate itself. And it's actually a, it's a critical need um, that, that the funding for mental health and substance abuse, to the extent that it's possible, really should be um, merged. It shouldn't really be one thing versus another one problem versus whether if you take a look at who's being treated in our um, in our, our treatment facilities, they don't distinguish themselves. Mm-hmm. The, the same person that's treated in a mental health facility may end up in a substance abuse facility. Why not try to bring that together? And I do want and to so say, that, Jonathan, yeah. that you were a great leader in that movement of really bringing those together and serve those individuals versus I mean, some organizations would kind of 
um, almost peel people away if they didn't have that mm-hmm. primary issue of mental health, even though they had underlying issues that maybe wouldn't even dealt with because of that. So I do want to really want to acknowledge your leadership around that because you really were a, a visionary and also a leader around um, really bringing it together because as you saw um, and experienced, uh, individuals were coming as whole people with all of their needs and, and your agency really tried to meet those needs um, in terms of that. I think um, HIV and AIDS also impacted that as well because That's people right. came with multiple medications um, and That's right. you had to acknowledge that. Right. Yes, I, I, I think that, well, thank you. And I, I think that um, I was thinking about this earlier as I was thinking about having this conversation with you. And I was uh, I was here and working in a community when the AIDS epidemic started. And I've been thinking about that a lot recently with COVID. What happened with HIV is HIV was initially viewed as uh, something fairly exotic. Um, People were very fearful of getting uh, HIV, not understanding how the virus spread and so forth and so on. And they were kind of segmented out of the population. And really, the gay community, HIV community, started to demand they be recognized and treated. And so bigger places developed a a residential treatment program called Ferguson Place, um, which I developed with a a man named Jim Ferguson, who was HIV positive, who was a substance user, who was gay. And um, he and I envisioned a program where the common thread would be um, uh, HIV plus either mental illness or substance use. And we began to understand how to work with people. And, and you are right. The, the people with HIV in the, in the 70s and 80s were walking experimental labs. Every doctor, the, the HIV doctors, experimented with different cocktails and so forth and so on to see what really worked. And the community basically presented themselves as volunteers in that process. And, of course, COVID is very is a very different problem. And as we've seen, the system has to adapt to a completely different issue in in terms of trying to keep the virus spread down. And that means reevaluating the way in which we treat people with medication. Right. And, you know, I think that um, I can remember at one point, Jonathan, you were being challenged in the medical detox. And by the way, for the audience, you know, Jonathan had to write up the licensing regulations for the state and challenge them about how to bring, because there's regulations that determine the kind of medications and the kind of medical service, the level of medical service you have within a facility. Uh, Title IX, I believe that is. And, Mm -hmm. And part of that challenge for you was you'd have somebody come in and it's still probably there. And I think this COVID, like HIV, will break some of those molds. We'll have to That's break right. some of those molds. It's kind of a conversation I want to go into with the news that we got today that I shared with you. Yeah. Which is sure. that, you know, you could not provide uh, wound care. They were challenging right. you for providing wound care for your client sitting there 
with, uh, you know, something that, you know, what did we want? We wanted them to go to an emergency room and do that. And we already had, you know, kind of basically saw and and proved that you could do uh, wound care in the community. Not everybody had to go into the hospital and be uh, right. given um, antibiotics through IV um, when we developed uh, one, another outpatient uh, wound care clinic. But that's the kind of structures that, you know, were created with people with good intentions of trying to manage the kind of medications and medical service that was being done and what you have to have. But it really inhibited your ability to really care for people holistically within a residential program where they're going to be with you for the next 30, 60, 90 days. Absolutely right. I mean, I, I think that that um, there are and there should be requirements around licensure and what a program should or shouldn't be able to do according to medical competency and a whole variety of other things, licensure requirements, uh, physician availability, and so forth. So what became a struggle um, was trying to figure out how to provide some services that normally were institutional services that could be provided at hospitals and so forth. In the in the facility, in the home, in the in that place, we were successful, I think, in being able to do an awful lot of that. But yeah. but only over time and with a lot of work, I think. We're well, and also people. showing the uh, there there weren't any bad results from um, providing some level of um, a oh, light right. primary care service, um, and you know maybe wound care is a little bit bigger than that, but. Um, it just struck me as something that we're kind of missing out on, you know, ensuring that some of these residential programs are able to meet the needs, which, you know, really mm-hmm. says something about um, what's going on today. And I wanted us to maybe think about, sure. um, I sent you an article today of San, yeah. uh, our San Francisco um, bringing people into hotels. Um, and there's a lot mm-hmm. of um, negative um, articles coming out right now um, talking about, well, that city's giving them, alcohol, cannabis, cigarettes, and methadone. Right. And so I right. thought maybe we should just have a little conversation about that stigmatizing because, you know, um, I think I wanted to talk about alcohol particularly because um, bars are closed and mm-hmm. uh, we have alcoholics who could go into detox. So if you're going to put them in a room and isolate them, uh, there's a great danger of them um, dying from um, mm-hmm. DTs. So... Would you agree with that in terms of the alcohol issue um, that, you know, we saw with their studies, I went to Canada, I saw the the alcohol program that they had, they gave people, you know, a couple ounces of alcohol just to maintain themselves, um, mm-hmm. and they were doing really well, and not having to get drunk or any of that, but just also maintaining themselves from a physical issue of, of um, you know, not responding without mm-hmm. alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, so it makes mm-hmm. sense to me if you're in a hotel room being isolated that, you know, you would start that uh, oversight um, with their That's alcohol right. regime, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, it's funny. You had sent me this article which did indicate that that all of these rooms had been rented up many, for many for homeless people that had concomitant mental health or substance use issues. And uh, I was reading it this morning, and I had spoken with... Uh, someone I used to work with, and he had told me a couple of days ago that people were getting alcohol. And for the first half a split second, I thought, what? And then I thought, oh, okay, I get it. Right. Because 
many people don't understand is that if you give it, if you go off alcohol and you go through withdrawal, we have a lot of ideas about the dangers of a heroin addiction and and going off the heroin. But the single most challenging drug to be able um, to move away from without physical consequences is alcohol. And many people that that are really addicted to alcohol, if you take that away, they'll have a seizure uh, or a stroke or a heart attack and die. And so it became clear to me as I looked at that article that that it was critical to keep people safe. And so in keeping people safe, you find yourself doing many things that you wouldn't otherwise do. And that's what we decided, that's what the city decided to do. And I support it. Right. They also there's drugs such as buprenorphine, um, which is which is a drug to assist people in getting off of heroin. Um, that, that allows the um, that allows the uh, effect of the drug to to diminish cravings, but it also allows a certain amount um, of the medication. Um, to help the person adapt to the absence of the drugs they were taking before. Yes. And as you know, uh-huh. go ahead. No, yeah, I was yeah, just going to say ahead. that and added to that was methadone, which, um, you know, they've been take-home methadone programs right. now for a decade, you know, people being able mm-hmm. to take home their methadone. Um, and on buprenorphine side, you know, from watching and talking to physicians as they're administrating it to clients, I mean, they almost immediately feel better. Um, and so, you know, it really gives them an opportunity to see if, you know, recovery is the direction they want, they need to go. You know, we all want people to do that and they're people, you know, they just have to be physically and emotionally ready for that. And buprenorphine has really proven to help people, um, because many people do not want to be in the street, um, you know, using, but they have to, mm-hmm. or they're going to die in their mind. That's right. That's right. And and they, unfortunately, uh, I remember when I first met you when you were director of homeless services. Um, they, they, people actually they began to develop this uh, this uh, uh, detox program that you credited me with. It was really an idea that that had had come from uh, the homeless services finding people who were dying on the street, just dying on the street from substance use in the middle of our San Francisco winters. Um, And there were nurses that were um, able to administer to them. And then Narcan came along to be able to actually reverse um, a seizure, to reverse an OD. Uh, I mean, it was really quite miraculous and, and, and inspiring. And you saw these people working so hard on the street to do that. But every one of those programs, as you know, also inspires a great deal of controversy. It's like needle exchange programs, for example, exactly. which also started with the HIV population. Exactly. Um, they can be publicly um, kind of misrepresented and people kind of respond like, what the hell are we doing here? Why are we giving people drugs? Well, we're we're not giving them needles so that they don't spread the virus. So, if, likewise, if someone's living in a single room occupancy and could be provided with some alcohol, so they don't one have to feel that they need to go out to the streets, possibly with COVID, 
spread that that virus um, and save their lives by giving them enough alcohol to get through the day, you're really saving lives. But, you know, interestingly, today I had someone coming over um, uh, to do some some work on my house and he started into this harangue about, you know what they're doing in San Francisco now? And he described the whole thing. And so I just tried to take an approach to say, well, you know, there's another way of looking at it. That's right. And, you know, that's, that's really right. required that's here. That's right. And, you know, this is the whole basis of what, you know, harm reduction and how um, everyone has embraced harm reduction in San Francisco. And it was a way to really save lives, accept right. people where they are, and try to move right. them along the health spectrum. Um, and <laughs> um, and you've been a real leader in this. And, um, you know, you uh, committed your career to some of the most vulnerable communities in uh, San Francisco. And I know you just weren't, you know, somebody who just worked in San Francisco, but you worked at the state level um, with associations to lobby and to ensure that the most vulnerable communities in San Francisco and in other communities throughout the country were able to get better care. So, you know, on behalf of Healthcare Untold, you know, we just want to acknowledge you as one of the heroes of Healthcare Untold and all the service and your lifetime commitment to those with mental health and substance use, Jonathan. And thank you so much for um committing your life to that. And um, we really want to thank you and the number of lives that you changed in your career. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Jonathan, for being part of this podcast and sharing uh, your life story as well as, um, you know, your career. Well, thank you, Barbara. It's uh, that's very generous and I appreciate it. And I would not have done anything differently, really. The work was its own reward and that's something that sometimes people from the outside don't understand because it really is very rewarding as well. Well you were one of those uh, individuals who would take the risk of saving lives so I really want to acknowledge you uh, Jonathan and thank you for being such a good friend and colleague to me throughout my career um, and so on behalf of Healthcare Untold we want to thank again Jonathan, Jonathan Vernick for being our guest today on Healthcare Untold. Um, please send comments to Healthcare Untold to our Facebook. I also want to thank Gerardo Sandoval, Dr. G, for his technical and production support. Healthcare Untold will also be supporting local businesses who are transitioning to different modes of sale. Please support these businesses to keep them thriving. And until next time, stay safe, stay home. This is Barbara Ann Garcia at Healthcare Untold. San Francisco, are you craving some authentic Mexican food? Not to worry, San Jalisco is open for takeout. You know you're craving that burrito macho or the mega vegetarian burrito? Maybe a quesadilla suiza? Or maybe a tostada, some enchiladas, a chile relleno, or some flautas? You know you're craving some authentic Mexican food. From the Mission District, San Jalisco Mexican Restaurant is the destination place for quality, authentic Mexican food. Currently operating for takeout only every Monday through Thursday from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. and Friday to Sunday from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. For more information, 
You can find them online at anjaliscorestaurant.com or call 415-648-8383. Again, that number is 415-648-8383. The Padillas Reyes family thanks you for your support. And remember, stay safe.